because again, if people's stories relate to the values of the company or the mission of the company, there is a process whereby sharing these shared experiences actually becomes part of the, the company culture. And that's when you start to actually see things from somebody else's point of view. And that is what empathy is. But it's not just seeing it from someone else's point of view. It really involves active listening to make sure you've heard what that is and heard what they need. And then to me, then the compassion is when you respond with support, with something that changes. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. Hi there, friends. My first book, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want, is now out in the world. Thank you so much for your support of the book. With your help, we are a number one Amazon bestseller in the business ethics category and a number one new release for time management in business and business etiquette. I have poured my heart into this book with personal stories and stories for my coaching clients using the values first framework. Between the constant pressure of job performance and demands on your time, it's easy to lose sight of your values letting them shift out of alignment. Those simple misalignments are keeping you from feeling joyful and fulfilled. Learn how to recenter your life and career around what truly matters to you. Order Values First now at your favorite independent bookstore or at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. I wanna make sure that you are the first to know about every book activity that we have in store, including virtual and in-person events. Stay up to date by joining our list at thecatchgroup.com slash values first. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. Welcome to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Jacqueline Kerr. Dr. Kerr is a mom, behavior scientist, and burnout survivor. She is in the top 1% of most cited scientists worldwide. Dr. Kerr left her position as a public health professor in 2018 and now hosts the podcast, Overcoming Working Mom Burnout, where she interviews researchers, diversity experts, and leadership coaches. She is on a mission to dismantle the causes of working mom burnout, and her TEDx talk provides solutions that we can all use to change the social norms around burnout. In particular, she provides a multi-level public health approach to burnout prevention that starts in the C-suite and evidence-based behavior change strategies for setting up a comprehensive strategic approach to burnout that aligns with DEI efforts. Today, we talked about how burnout manifests differently at different levels of the organization. We also talked about how behavior change science can help us take action and what organizations and leaders can do to support their teams. Let's get started. 
Well, I would love to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, Jacqueline, I'd love if you could talk to us a little bit more and tell us your story before we dig into our topic. Sure. So I was actually in the equivalent of the C-suite in academia. So, you know, without tooting my own horn, I was in the top 1% of most cited scientists worldwide. I was a leader and paradigm shifting leader in my field and a leader in a cancer center at my university. And I burned out. And I think that's so important for us to understand that so many women are are so competent and can lead, but by the time they actually get to the top, that they are burned out and the experience of, of getting there has left them exhausted and sometimes ill. And some of the women I interview on my podcast, that has exactly been their experience. They get to the top And they think that hard work is what gets them there, and it does. But the barriers we have to face along the way mean that we arrive exhausted. And then to be honest, when we get there, it feels like almost to me sometimes that the the game actually changes because we're still facing these barriers at the top. We don't necessarily have the voice that we thought we were going to have when we got there. I resonate with so much of what you just said. I love that you just tooted your own horn. I think that's wonderful. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Well, I think that's the important thing is often there's this assumption that women aren't in the C-suite because they're not competent or they don't want to be. My goodness, I, I was such an ambitious leader and such a competent leader. And I see it also in the medical field. So I came from a school of medicine. And for example, female physicians have better outcomes in the emergency room. They're more likely to save a life and they have better surgical outcomes. And yet they are 150% more likely to attempt suicide than male physicians. So we have this situation where they're absolutely saving lives and doing better, but their own lives are at risk in the process because of all the situations in the workplace that lead to feelings of lack of psychological safety, and also just lack of equal reward and promotion opportunities. It's such a battle to get there that even these very competent women are are losing out. And then we lose out on them as the best physicians that we we could actually have. So to me, it's it's such a challenge. And I think it translates directly into from medicine to corporate as well, right? We see very similarly, more diverse teams have better outcomes than non-diverse teams, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think about that too, again, from, from the research side we have, if you ask a diverse team a question like, like we do in research, we say, okay, what, what is this research question and what's the answer? If you get 10 answers that sound exactly the same because they've come from the same experience, that, that's not going to lead to an innovative paradigm shifting solution. Whereas we can ask you know, people with different cultural backgrounds, gender identities, um, so much different life experience, that is collective intelligence, which leads to more diverse and innovative solutions. So, I mean, there's so much evidence to show that that's the case. But I think what we really have to understand is where are the blocks along the way? And and burnout is definitely one of those blocks because it affects representation 
and it affects people's health and ability to come to work and do the performance that they absolutely have the ability to do. Can we talk a bit about how burnout manifests at different levels of an organization? Because it can look very differently uh, across different levels. Can we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, exactly. So there are basically different conditions that lead to burnout. So burnout is recognized, workplace burnout is recognized by the World Health Organization as an occupational phenomenon that is caused by the workplace. So that's one of the things. This isn't caused by individuals. This is caused by the conditions we work in. Now, some of those conditions could be overwork and overwork and overwhelm and exhaustion is a symptom of burnout. And that's just one of the conditions identified by burnout researchers. Another condition is lack of autonomy, lack of reward, injustice, values conflicts, lack of collegiality, lack of psychological safety, and role conflict, role strain. So if you think about all those other conditions, who is experiencing those conditions? If we start at the top there, the lack of autonomy. So the chances are someone who is in the C-suite, which unfortunately is still the majority, absolute majority male white leaders, their experience of burnout has likely come from multiple responsibilities in the workplace and overwork and overwhelm and some personal pressure, performance pressure. I totally understand that. So the solutions to that type of burnout are, yes, taking a break, instituting time management solutions, delegating, hiring to solve. But that's not the same experience of burnout that the majority of workers are having. So like we mentioned, if women are not being promoted, then they don't have that autonomy, those potentials for autonomy, controlling their schedules, controlling who they work with. And then when we look at things like the maternal wall and the motherhood penalty, which are defined barriers that mums face in work where they're not being promoted equally and they're not being paid equally, those are the conditions for burnout. And those conditions, a bath, a vacation, those don't solve that type of burnout. And I think particularly when we think about the burnout that our diversity, equity and inclusion officers can be experiencing from working on a project in an organization with insufficient resources, with potential re-traumatization, with this effort to to actually educate and and change diversity in, in our workplaces, those aren't the same conditions. That's not just overwork. This is really a very different experience of burnout. And so that's what we need to understand is what are the conditions that we can create in our workplaces that prevent burnout across the organization? And so self-care and a vacation is not the answer to those systemic problems. And they really are systemic. But if we keep saying it's self-care and it's take a vacation, that messaging is this is something that is your problem that you have to solve. And if we don't then elevate those problems to systemic problems, systemic solutions won't happen. So a lot of people, when they experience burnout, blame themselves and they feel very much to blame and they feel very alone. And that then leads to this, oh, I'll solve it myself. And and really, this is where we need to start having these conversations and changing these conversations and say, this is burnout. 
and it is not caused by my own failings, right? This is caused by bias that is baked into this system. And as C-suite leaders, you know, if we are experiencing burnout in a different way than our employees, it feels like it's more than self-awareness. It has to be empathy. It has to be connection. Can you talk about how we need to think about that as leaders in a different way to really understand, you know, the experiences of our organization and potential systemic problems that don't actually impact us. Right, exactly. So I think one of those things is starting to share stories. And there is multiple ways of of doing that. Because again, if there isn't psychological safety in a company, people aren't going to share those stories. So again, featuring the experiences of multiple people at multiple levels of the employee. Some people have these newsletter type formats and, and story sharing experiences. So I think that then starts to add a, um, because again, if people's stories relate to the values of the company or the mission of the company, there is a process whereby sharing these shared experiences actually becomes part of the, the company culture. And that's when you start to actually see things from somebody else's point of view. And that is what empathy is. But it's not just seeing it from someone else's point of view. It really involves active listening to make sure you've heard what that is and heard what they need. And then to me, then the compassion is when you respond with support, with something that changes. And so I think that's part of it, that we need our C-suite to actually be able to choose to see their lived experiences. So somehow we have to start sharing those experiences so people can see and believe them. And and that's part of the problem is, again, this emphasis on your imagining is the gaslighting that occurs around this, that not only leads to a feeling of like institutional betrayal, but it also repeats the the trauma that somebody could be going through or the the microaggression that they're experiencing when their experience is not believed. So that's what's so important is creating a space where it's safe to share these experiences so we can all learn from them and hear each other's diverse experiences. And again, it's it's not safe for everyone to feel like they can bring their whole self to work. So something has to to change in that environment first. And and again, that, that comes from the top. Although, you know, I have seen leaders sort of share their burnout story and say, is anyone else feeling burnt out? And of course it's crickets because no one else yet feels safe to do so. So there really has to be trust building so that people can start to do that. And that's certainly one way to start. But I think also changing the system itself. So for example, Dr. Iris Burnett, she's the head of the School of Business at the Harvard Kennedy School of Business. And she has a a book about equality by design. And basically she's saying unstructured interviews and self-appraisals, these are our tools that we know have bias built in. They must, we must stop using them. We need promotion and hiring team. So there's not a single manager who's biased, male or female, comes into the question. We really need teams making decisions so that more voices can actually see when bias is occurring. We need structured questions. So again, it's not just a, oh, you play golf, me too, conversation that occurs. And we need objective criteria. And again, that's what happens so often is 
women and men's performance can be equal. And it's shown again and again that when the performance is equal, men's potential is judged as higher based on, on no facts. And that's why they're receiving the promotion. So there has to be some objectivity. And kind of how I see this as well, it comes from the National Academy of Medicine guidelines for the prevention of burnout, which is essentially it has to start at the board level. So if you put well-being as a key performance indicator for a company, even at the board level, we're accountable for one, you start to measure it and actually say, are we you know, meeting our well-being indicator, right? Because you actually have to start setting what does that look like? And then for me, the investment comes from there. You prioritize employee well-being and you invest in the right solutions. And then you'd pretty quickly see that vacations and even some mental health services, that they are just band-aids, that the things you actually need to change are the hiring and promotion systems, the support for subsidized childcare, the support for paid leave, supporting our ERGs. If you're actually doing work around equality, having a team of DI experts, not just one DI leader. And there's so many investments that we need to make that if it's aligned to well-being, then people will prioritize them. And to me, it's this misunderstanding of what comes first, the chicken and egg. And essentially, unless we turn up to work healthy and valued, then we are not going to put in the performance that is expected of us at work. It's not that productivity makes us happy and therefore we want to stay. It really comes from being valued and healthy to start with, then our productivity follows. So if we can shift that mindset of well-being comes first and productivity and profitability follows, then it can really help organizations shift their, their mindsets. The world is getting more and more complex, anabic chaotic, pandemic, social unrest, recession, hybrid workforce, you name it, it is here. And it's hard to navigate home and work for yourself and for your team. And what about time for you? It seems non-existent. Our recent podcast listener and reader told me the following. This has been a light bulb moment, knowing my values and then identifying boundaries to protect my values and building systems to support those boundaries. It's been incredible. When I've broken one of those boundaries, remembering my values has kept me focused. In Values First, this book can give you the tools to build those boundaries, but more importantly, how to keep them with a proven framework to identify what matters most to you and the motivation to build a sustainable plan. Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want is now available wherever books are sold. Go to thecatchgroup.com slash values first to learn more and stay connected. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. And picking up like bits and pieces of what I think is some of the behavioral science that you're explaining in some of these examples. Can you um, walk through some of the best practices or known things like through behavioral science that actually helps some of these things stick? So some of the things that I might heard you say was kind of measurable goals, 
you know, starting in the right, the right spot that kind of the right level of the organization. Are there other ones that you can explicitly call out as part of kind of behavioral science and why that works? Right. Yes, for sure. I think there's such a, uh, an important understanding that we have to have. People always think about awareness and we actually know that unconscious bias training, for example, that changes your awareness of your biases can actually lead to inaction because you think you've solved your problem because now you know about it. And so then from, from awareness to actually intending to do something, I mean, how many of us intend to lose weight or organize our cupboards or actually start, you know, making good savings. We can have intentions for years. So I would say the gap between intentions and then the action that actually leads to change is like the Grand Canyon. So what can we do to fill that space to actually move us from intention to action? So really clear ingredients, really clear solutions. And those are out there. They're out there in DI guidelines from Has Berkeley, they're out there from equality and burnout guidelines from the the National Academy of Medicine. So we know what to do. So the question is, where's the recipe that helps you do it? And that's where behavior change science comes in. So there's two aspects to it. Sometimes we don't actually have to change what people believe or what they want or intend to do. So for example, if you think about a key card in a hotel room, and you put the key card in, the lights come on. When you leave the hotel room, you take the key card out, the lights go off. You did not buy into saying, I want to save electricity here. You just were designed to doing the right thing. So that's sometimes how we can think about the system changing. If we can design the system where there are just certain policies and practices in place that happen by default, that default is so important. Because again, if we think about paid leave, If we made paid leave the default for all types of caregivers and you actually had to opt out of it, you had to write a letter to say, I do not want to take my leave. You wouldn't take that effort to do it. The easier choice is to take it. So a lot of this can come from this behavioral design. But if you actually want to have a change where you need to change a habit, because again, people think about systems as systems being things that we can't change, but systems are basically people who are decision makers. So if we want our decision makers to actually be developing habits of making a different decision um, or using a decision tool that's less biased again and again, because you could have decision tools that reduce bias, but if someone doesn't use them. So what do you do to create that sort of level change? And this is the, the behavior change science that I come from and that I absolutely love. So, you know, one of the first steps is is having a a good goal, but that can be really hard to to do. So sometimes part of the process is to say exactly what I want to do and to create this plan. And as you create the plan with really, really specific details, you start to go, okay, that goal seems a little unachievable. I need a goal that is a little more achievable. So this part of the process that is called implementation plans is when you say, what am I going to do? When exactly? How am I going to do it? How often? Where? With whom? You start to get all these really specific details. So not only are those a reality check to see whether your goal seems feasible, but all those details create this plan 
And if you can imagine, this actually comes, the, the implementation science of this actually came from originally saying, okay, when we used to have to do breast self exams, you had to sort of say, okay, when am I actually going to do that? I'm going to do it in the shower on, you know, the first day of my period. And, and all those things make you remember to do it. They become cues to action. So that's a huge part of behavior changes. How are you going to remember to do this thing? What can cue you? So the plan can help cue you. You can have it all set up so that you have reminders in your calendar. You have reminders in your workplace. So for example, some people have targets that they actually would set up somewhere in their workplace and say, are we reaching that target? And not only is it knowing that you're trying to get there, looking at that target is constantly a reminder. That's where I'm working to get. So reminders and cues are so important. Sometimes we can also anchor our behaviors to another behavior. So for example, if you were trying to do mindfulness each day, you might say, I'm going to do mindfulness when I make my coffee. And the coffee is the thing you want. You're ready. Oh God, I need my coffee. That's no problem. Right. And then the coffee prompts you to pause and do your mindfulness practice. So that anchors it to another behavior. So you could see that happening in the workplace. It's okay. Every time we do this process, we anchor this other behavior to it. And then um, accountability partners are so important. So you could just have accountability from a colleague. You say, I'm going to try and stand up in a meeting and make my voice heard. Will you support me to do that? Or if I see bias in my organization, I'm actually going to stand up. Will you help me do that? Will you, will you, will you back me up if I do that? Um, how can we together agree to do this thing? Because again, collective action is so helpful. So having an accountability partner is so important. And for many people, that could be a coach, for example, that an employer can subsidize. And that way you have someone that's there for you, supporting you, reminding you to do it. And so, again, all these things come around to, to saying, okay, what is it I'm actually doing and how will I know when I've got there? And that's why we made a lot of progress in some ways in exercise science once we had tools like Fitbits where we could actually measure our goals and see if we could get there. And so tracking where you're going and where you're getting is so important, not only because it keeps reminding you that you're trying to get there, but then also as you get there, you celebrate. And that's so important to have that reinforcement. Sometimes the reinforcement comes from we're doing the right thing. This feels good. Other times you actually have to incentivize people and put in rewards, especially sometimes in the early process. So again, how do you incentivize people to do the right thing at work. And that comes from saying, okay, I'm going to have team well-being as a promotion criteria. I'm going to promote the managers that have teams who have higher levels of well-being. So you, you bake it into the system. So behavior change is really complex. And that doesn't mean it's too difficult to do. It means we have to set ourselves up for success. And we really know how to do that from, from these processes. And they all reinforce each other and, and can lead to such success. So it definitely is possible. It, it's absolutely possible to have change as long as we recognize the support that we need to do it. Do you feel like a leader could do that within their culture, their, like their immediate team, their direct reports, without having the organization adopts similar 
or is it necessary to have both? So I think there can be that ripple effect that what one team does can ripple out to, to other teams. So I definitely think that, again, that's why so often we say, let's start with ourselves as individuals. And if I change myself, then, then my change will help change others. But I think I heard a quote recently is that individual change is the first step. But if it is not associated with collective change, there is no change, right? No, change doesn't happen. So we really need to out loud be telling people about these changes we've made um, as, as employees to actually say, hey, I'm, I'm not responding to emails out of office hours. I've set a boundary for myself. It gives someone else permission to do that. So again, as leaders, we need them to role model these behaviors that prevent overwork. Uh, role models, that's such an important part of behavior change science, because you're not only saying, here's what you do, here's an example of how you do it, but but you're also saying, here's permission to do it. And you're also saying, hey, someone like me can do this thing. Um, if, if your leader can do it, you can do it too. So there's so many aspects to role modeling that comes into behavior change science that's so important. So I would definitely say, starting at a team level and and recognizing what does your team need to support their well-being and I think that's the thing as well is I think we assume there's a silver bullet for so many of these things and actually doing it at small scale and experimenting within your own team what worked for you then sharing that with other teams and this is part of another scientific process called collaborative learning, whereas actually you set a goal as a team, you support each other. And as you learn from that, you then share it with another team. They adopt it. They have to make some changes because their team is slightly different. Their work role is slightly different. And so what adaptions do they make or what totally new solutions do they come up with? But it's like, if you don't have like something to start with, you don't know where to start. So that process of building these experiments and then building them out is, is so helpful. But I think what's really important too is back to that. If we don't give our leaders the reason to elevate this problem to a higher level, then it's really important. So if we constantly are saying, burnout is my individual problem and it doesn't then become the manager's problem that they need to say to the c-suite we need resources and we need different systems to prevent burnout so again that at some stage that elevation to a higher level of problem does have to happen but again the more that these solutions are actually worked out at small scale and then scaled up is also helpful because I think lots of people when COVID hit lots of companies tried to do all these things like they were saying well let's do online yoga together and they pretty soon realized that is not what people want so you still have to have that recognition of what is working how can we tell it's working and are we listening to see whether it's working um, that's so important to keep that active listening open I love those really great tangible examples. Have you seen kind of the shift to any of these kind of more values-based things you mentioned before, this idea about if it's adopted, if like well-being is adopted at the board level and we're asking for accountability at that level, then hopefully then we're actually doing something about it. We're putting plans in place, we're reporting back on those metrics. Have you seen a shift in the companies that you work with shifting some of their values 
or emphasizing some of their values to align to some of these things to address some of the systemic changes? Yeah, and, and so I'm really still new to this um, role. So in, in terms of me going into companies and, and, and making changes, I haven't had that, that opportunity to do that. But I'm definitely seeing that the companies are starting to pledge to, to address these issues. And um, I've definitely seen within healthcare how organizational change can, can happen when we decide to do these quality improvement cycles like, like I described. And so we're definitely starting to see, see shifts in, in places where, where we are actually you know, making those decisions. But I think a lot of it comes from this sense that we feel like we're failing and that we're sort of too afraid to, to actually then start to measure it and, and make progress and that it feels an overwhelming problem. But the, but the issue is it, it, it's there and we need to start having companies um, shift to change. And so part of what I've been doing at this point is really helping the organizations that are going into companies, helping them understand where burnout fits into the services that they're already offering for organizations. And also to understand, okay, how do we actually impact the behaviors most clearly? But definitely that's where I, I really want to get into being able to support the, the C-suite to understand what burnout is and what burnout solutions really look like so that it doesn't feel like this unsolvable epidemic. It, it, it really has very concrete solutions matched to very concrete causes. I love to hear that there is something that we can do. And I think to your point, it's up to those leaders to do that. And I want to highlight um, a resource that you have and it is a free guide on how to spot burnout in your employees. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how we might be able to get it? Sure. Thank you so much. Yeah. So if anyone goes onto my website, which is drjacquelinecur.com, then there's this free guide that takes you through recognizing the behaviors that your employees might have that represent burnout, the types of personalities that can burn out, and then the groups that may be suffering burnout more and why, and then what are the conditions in your workplace. So that's certainly a start. And I also have my TEDx talk that is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. And that really takes you through this understanding of how it all comes together. Why is burnout related to leadership and society and what we can actually do? What are the behavior change steps that we can take to, to improve burnout. Wonderful. And we're going to link all of those resources in our show notes. And I just want to thank you so much for connecting with us here today and sharing just so much science and your thoughts on how we can show up as leaders to not only address burnout for ourselves, but also for our teams. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. 
To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.